Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this first episode of Bible Biogs in 30 minutes, we're focusing on the lives of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. And we'll talk about Eve in a minute, Mike, but uh, let's just focus on Adam first of all. What, what, what does the Bible tell us about him? Well, Adam is actually a word that's used in two senses in those first two chapters of Genesis. Uh, in the Hebrew, it talks about the Adam, in other words, the man, mm-hmm. but it also talks about him as Adam, so it gives him a particular name. So it's as if the Bible is saying to us here, the story of the first man is also the story of every man. It's the story of Adam the man, but it's the story of Adam humanity also. So you can read it in both ways. Very much so. The Hebrew lets you do that. And in fact, the Hebrew slips between the two. And uh, often in our modern translations these days, it will make that clear by talking about God said to the man or God said to Adam. And it will try and distinguish uh, in the way that the Hebrew does. So, so what, I mean, is there other evidence in the Bible that Adam was a real person, really existed? There was somebody called Adam. Well, that's certainly how the Bible presents it. That's how Genesis presents it. It's how the rest of the Bible looks back to it as well. And irrespective of what view one has of how creation came into being, and we all know Christians have different views about that, the Bible's pretty clear there was a person called Adam. After all, Jesus himself uh, refers back to what God did at the beginning with Adam and Eve and joining them in marriage. Paul refers back to them. So the Bible's pretty clear. Yes, there was someone called Adam who represented the whole of humanity and in what he did and didn't do, ended up affecting the rest of humanity from that day on. So where did Adam come from? He came from a miracle. God created him. The whole of Genesis 1 is this fantastic story of how God brought creation out of nothing into something. And again, we know that Christians have different views on how that may have happened, whether it was a literal six-day creation, which God is well able to do. Of course he is. Or was it a picture of something much more complex? However that happened, the key focal point of what we're looking at today is that um, Adam mankind didn't just somehow happened. Again, whatever the process may have been, it it wasn't an accident. God brought about Adam. God created Adam. We're told from the dust of the earth. And one of the interesting things that I find in the creation account in in Genesis 1 is that it goes through the story uh, sort of days by days, phases by phases. But on day six, we find both animals and man created. Now, they're presented as two separate creative activities, but it is interesting that they both belong on the sixth day. And it's as if God is saying to us that we are really very closely tied together. And yet, and yet there is something about mankind that makes us different from animals. So as a Christian, I wouldn't feel able to say, that people are just another animal, a highly developed animal. No, there is something different about us. And that difference is 
that God brought Adam about, creating him from the dust of the earth, the Bible tells us. That's interesting as well, isn't it? Because we know these days that's exactly what we are. We're a whole bunch of chemicals at one level. From dust we came into dust we'll return. And that's exactly what happens. But into this creation, God breathes his life, breathes his spirit. Mm-hmm. And Genesis 2 talks about Adam becoming a living being, something that's different from animals. So that's the difference. There's this there's this breath of life, which is, I mean, obviously animals have life, but there's something particular about this breath of life. Is there something unique? Yes, there is, because it's it's God himself who breathes the breath into him. Clearly, everything that came into being was created by God. Without God's breath in it, it couldn't even have existed. But in Genesis 2, 7, it talks about uh, the Lord God had formed the man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. He became a living thing that that is different from the animals. Were they living things? Yes, they were. But this living thing has got the very breath of God in him. He has got an aspect of his being that makes it possible for him to know God and relate to God and to connect to God in a way that the animals created on the same day simply couldn't do. Is that connected to what we sort of talk about, spirit, body and soul for for humans? Is, Is there a link with that? Yes, I think it is. Sometimes we perhaps distinguish too much between spirit, body, and soul. You know, in Hebrew thinking, they really saw all those as different aspects of the same thing rather than different bits. Seeing it as different bits is is much later Greek thinking. But in Hebrew thinking, when it talked about a man's soul or a man's body, it was thinking of the whole of man, but with reference to one part of him. So yes, this is very much his his spirit, that part of him that relates to God, that the other parts of creation, including animals, simply don't have. That's why this opening chapter is so exciting. It lets us know from the beginning that no matter how you think creation came into being, human beings are in a special place and are able to have a special relationship with God that no other part of creation can do. And so though it's focused on on Adam and Eve, and we'll talk about Eve in a minute, you know, to quite specific people, it's actually a much broader portrait of mankind. It is. It's the picture of, we might say, every man. And again, that is allowed in the Hebrew text itself. It slips between Adam and the Adam. So it is the story of Adam, this first man, and how he responded. But it's also saying this is the story of the every Adam, of every man. Every man has been created with this possibility of relationship with God. And every man and woman has somehow messed that up. And the story of the Bible that we're going to be going through over these coming weeks is the whole story of what God did to fix that. Is it important to read the story of Adam and Eve with some sort of appreciation of the world at that time and an understanding of how the world was seen by people? Yes. And in a sense, you're probably leading me here into tricky ground, aren't you? Um, Because as I've said earlier, Christians do have different views about these early chapters. And for for some Christians, seeing the six-day creation as literally six 24-hour periods is is really, really crucial. 
other equally Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians would see this as much more reflecting the culture of the time. In fact, um, some of the latest um, research has shown that by comparison with other creation stories in the ancient world, how about this? Genesis 1 might not be a creation story at all. Whoa, where did that come from? Hmm. And the idea is that really all the Bible says about creation is Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the rest of Genesis 1 is not so much a creation story as a formation story. It's telling us how God assigned functions to different parts of his creation that he had already made for the plan that he was about to unfold. Bit of a complex argument that we've just not got time to go through today. But I think what we need to say is that Christians do have slightly different views about these early chapters. And my plea is always to people, listen, no matter which line you take, please be big hearted towards others who love Jesus like you do, but have a slightly different understanding of how to interpret these chapters. So either way, it does raise an important question. Why did God create Adam? Oh, wow. That is a key question, isn't it? Because I think one thing we need to remember is, you know, God didn't create Adam and Eve and the human race because he was lonely, you know, because he somehow needed relationship. Uh, and sometimes you can hear Christians uh, talking perhaps a little bit loosely in their language that almost sounds like God created us because he needed someone to love. Now, the Bible's really clear. God needs nothing and God needs no one. God is God. He has everything. And Father, Son, and Spirit throughout eternity could have happily existed on their own. But the whole of creation comes out of the fact that God is a creative God. And if you're creative, then you love to create. And that's what God did in these chapters. But in the creating of man, what we've got is, I think, the expression of God's commitment to love and covenant. As Christians, we believe in a God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three yet one. Right there at the heart of the Godhead is relationship. And it's as if our God is so relational that that had to spill over. And God created human beings not because he had something that he needed to relate to, that he needed to relate, but because he wanted to relate, because there was something about him that just loved relating. And the thing that God loves relating to best of all in the whole of his creation are people like us. Well, that brings us on to Eve then, because who needed Eve? Did Adam need Eve? Well, God said he certainly needed Eve, but probably like most men, you know, he probably thought he was doing very nicely. Um, but it's interesting as we move on to chapter two, chapter one really just talks about Adam, probably in the sense of human beings, let's make human beings. But then in chapter two, it's like we get the story again, but this time zoomed in. It's almost like an action replay of, yeah, I've told you the big picture. Now let's look again at what God did with the creation of Adam. And it, it tells us that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to care for it and, 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 and look after it, an element of stewardship there of this world. But then having put him there and given him a command that we'll no doubt come back to in a few minutes, God says these words, it's not good for the man 
to be alone. I'll make a helper for him. It's as if God has seen Adam is there with all the animals and enjoying the beauty and perfection of creation and yet seeing there was something deep in his heart that was still lacking. And so he makes this helper. Now, that's a really interesting word in the Hebrew, because what it doesn't mean is a little missy to come running around after him, making him his cups of tea. That word helper in Hebrew is the very same word that is used of God towards us. The Lord is our helper. And there's certainly nothing way to like or subservient about him. It means one who corresponds to him. It was like the other piece of the jigsaw that fitted together. God saw that Adam was good. In fact, Genesis 1 has told us it's all very good. And yet Adam needed something more to make him complete. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone who's single is not complete, of course. Of course, we can be complete in Jesus. But this is talking about the human race as a whole. There is something incomplete within the human race unless there is both male and female to be together and to bring their complementary gifts to one another. And in that coming together, that's when we see something of the full image of God in us. Talking of which, what is it that the Bible says about the kind of Adam and Eve that he created? In other words, it's some reference to in our likeness. God talks about himself in the plural as well. Yes, he does, doesn't he? Two interesting things there. God says, let us make. Now, scholars think there's two possibilities. That might be the royal we, as we might call it today. Um, you know, when the Queen of England makes a pronouncement, she will often say, we are very pleased to welcome you. And we know what she means by we, I. It's a plural of majesty. And the honest truth is, it, it could be that. But with hindsight, and of course it can only be with hindsight, one has to ask, is perhaps they hear the first glimpse of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I wouldn't teach the Trinity from that point, but one wonders, might that have been the first glimpse of a God who is three, yet a God who is one? And it's this God who wants to make man in his image, in his likeness. What on earth does that mean? Does it mean I'm looking at you and thinking, oh my goodness, does God look like that? <laughs> You're probably thinking the same about me as well. I think what it's saying here is that this is what makes mankind different from the animals. There is something about us in that spirit, soul area of our being that can connect with God, that we are made for relationship with him in a way that nothing else in creation is. And so God makes us in his image in the sense that he makes us to know him, to want him, to know that the fulfillment of our lives is found only in him. And it's one of the differences between ourselves and animals that God has given us choice. Yes, and that's one of the big stories that comes out, isn't it, in these early chapters. Um, choice is clearly one thing that is godlike. God was very happy on his own, but he chose to create the whole universe. And it's interesting in Genesis chapter two, how he gives to Adam the ability to choose. 
by the way, did you notice there I said that he gives to Adam hmm. the ability to choose? You know, in church history, often poor old Eva's been blamed, hasn't she? For, for eating the apple. Yeah, for passing on the fruit to Adam. But actually, if you read chapter two carefully, you find that God gave those instructions to Adam before Eve comes into the picture. So it's actually from verse 15 of chapter two, where, where God says, look, I've given you this beautiful garden. So he's made the whole beautiful world. But within that world, there's a special garden, a place where God can be particularly found, this garden of Eden. And he's put everything in for Adam to enjoy. And right there at the middle, there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, Adam, I'm going to give you choice. I don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from anything else, but don't eat from that one because the day that you eat from that one, you'll die. Suddenly, Adam has the possibility of choice. Only then do we go on to read from verse 18 that God says it's not good that man shall be alone and creates Eve. So it seems like Eve wasn't there mm. when he gave Adam that instruction, and yet she takes the blame so often. Mm. The blame was really his. He should have told his wife mm. what God had said to him. So there is choice and one of the key ideas that will be picked up again and again in the Bible from this story is how Adam made a wrong choice. Of course, people like you and I today never make wrong oh, choices, do we? Never. We always make the right ones. <laughs> but here's this guy who makes a wrong choice. God gives him the ability to choose. And I think that is one of the things that marks out what makes humans different, the ability to choose what's right and what's wrong what's good and what's bad. And so often, like in this story, we stupidly end up choosing the wrong one. There also seems to be a blame game going on um, because there's a serpent in the story in the Garden of Eden as well. Oh, so ab Absolutely. So when, when everything starts going downhill, here's this serpent in chapter three. And, and by the way, it's only called a serpent in chapter three. He's not called Satan at this point. And we wouldn't know this was Satan until much later in the Bible. So this creature comes along and manages to convince Eve that it would be really good to eat the fruit. And I love the way that he puts his question. At the beginning of chapter three in the New Living Translation, it said, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden. That communicates exactly the tone of the Hebrew. Did God really say, or maybe we might put it, God didn't say, don't eat that tree, did he? And as she replies, she sort of replies with what God said, but adds a little bit to it. Because she said, well, God did say we can eat from any, but, but not from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden and we're not allowed to eat it. And, and God said, uh, you must not eat it or even touch it or you'll die. God hadn't said anything about touch. And it's like she starts to add to what God said. You know what? That's when we get into trouble so often, adding bits to what God has said. So she was sort of faced with half-truths and, and indeed some lies. Yeah, and then adds it a little bit herself. And, and so often... <laughs> 
think as Christians, we find that's often the way that the devil works. He comes and he challenges, and it sounds so rational. God didn't really say, you know, and in our culture today, let me give a very current example. God didn't really say marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman, did he? How ridiculous. And it's that sort of tone and question that the serpent comes to Eve with. And then a second mistake is to get into this conversation with him. Don't engage in conversation. Flee from the devil, the New Testament tells us. And then she adds a little bit to what God said. And of course, then she takes the fruit, eats it. And as she took it at that moment, something starts to happen. She takes it and she gives it to Adam, convinces him to eat it too. And it says at that moment, their eyes were opened. And it's like, they think, no, what have we done? In their case, it says they they suddenly knew they were naked. They'd not known that before. And suddenly they felt shame. But here again is the story of every man. How many times does the devil come along and tempt us with something? And tell us it will be good. And God didn't really say in any way, even if you do it, God won't mind. God will forgive you. And we believe his lies and do it. And then we think, no, why did I do that? Every time you have that feeling, you're reliving the story of Genesis chapter three. I mean, presumably there's nothing wrong with temptation per se. I mean, Jesus was tempted, wasn't he, in the wilderness? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, in Jesus's temptation, he recapitulates, relives some of these stories from from the garden, because one of the temptations is all to do with eating, isn't it? Mm. You know, turn this stone into bread. And it would have been easy for Jesus to do. But no, that's not what God had said to him. Uh, And so, yeah, Jesus too was tempted. Uh, New Testament tells us he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet did not sin. In other words, he's faced with choice, just like us. But every time he says no to what's wrong and yes to what God wanted, and he does that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who's available to us today. Sadly, Adam and Eve didn't do that and brought a whole load of trouble on all of us. Well, I was going to say, what was the ramification of just eating some fruit? Well, of course, the fruit itself. Oh, and by the way, let's just say the fruit almost certainly wasn't an apple. Right. Apples don't really grow in that part of the world. You need cold countries like you know, <laughs> the United Kingdom and Canada for apples. It's probably something like a peach, much more likely. Okay. How did it come to be apple? Well, the Hebrew says it's fruit. But when the Bible was translated into English, the word they used was apple because apple in those days was simply a piece of fruit, and it could mean anything. Uh, okay. And so the tradition came that it was an apple, and that got painted up, and it's been an apple ever since. Yeah. So it was really this piece of fruit. But the issue wasn't the fruit. It wasn't like there was anything magical in the fruit, of course. The issue was the disobedience. The issue was the choice. Adam, if you're going to live in this garden with me and know my presence in a special way, then you really do need to do things my way. And because he didn't, Adam and Eve get expelled. Now, you mentioned a few moments ago a blame game Hmm. because God comes to Adam and says, did you eat the fruit? And he does what many men do and said, well, yes, but it wasn't really me. It was my wife. And God goes to the wife and says, did you eat it? And she says, 
Yes, I did, but it wasn't me. It was the serpent. It wasn't me. It was my wife. It wasn't me. It was the serpent. It's not in the text, but it wouldn't have surprised me if the serpent said, and it wasn't my fault, but I was dropped on my head when I was a baby, and I've never been the same since. <laughs> there again, the story of every man, mm. blame shifting. It's not me. And we'll see again and again in the Bible stories. You know, when people shift blame, God can't do anything with it. But when they say, God, it was me, that's when God can come in and change things. Sadly, they didn't do that. And so Adam and Eve get expelled from this Garden of Eden. Now, that doesn't mean God still wasn't there. The whole of creation is God's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, one of the Psalms says. But Eden was this special place of intimacy with God that Adam and Eve now get expelled from. God, in his kindness, makes them clothing of animal skins but sends them out through the gate of this garden and puts their cherubim, particular kinds of mighty angels, standing at the gate with a flaming sword so that they could never come back into the presence of God again. You know, it's interesting. When the tabernacle and the temple would be eventually created, there would be this great curtain that separated the main part of the temple from the Holy of Holies. And God told Moses to embroider on that curtain, guess what? <laughs> Cherubim. Right. The symbol that said, keep out, you can't come in, because behind that curtain was the presence of God. And so Adam and Eve are expelled from the intimate presence of God, never to get back in again, until the New Testament tells us, the last Adam, a second man will come who will undo everything that this first Adam did and make it possible for us to come right into God's presence again. Is that the rather strange reference? In the conversation God has with the serpent, he talks about a crushing. Is that what we're talking about? Just explain that to me. Yes, that could well be a reference. Now, again, at the time, that's not what they would have thought of. It would simply seem to be that a descendant, a human descendant, will one day crush this serpent. But as we get to the New Testament, it's like we can look back and say, ah, there was the very first glimpse. There was God's first promise right from that day that he would one day send a descendant of Adam and Eve. And of course, humanly, that's what Jesus was. And Luke's gospel takes great care to trace Jesus's genealogy right back to Adam to show that he was indeed a man, God become man, and that this would be the man who would crush the serpent's head and who would make it possible for the sin, the disobedience that Adam and Eve did to be forgiven. So we could, as it were, come back into the garden again, come back into the presence of God and know that intimacy that, that God designed for us to have right from the beginning. Overall, as you reflect on the story of Adam and Eve, you know, what would you say then is the, is the great significance of, of their lives for, for us today? What, what can we learn from their lives, from their example uh, for our lives today? Be careful of people who offer you fruit. <laughs> 
Now, I think what we perhaps can learn from that more than anything else is, you know, Satan has such a good way of trying to make us think that what God says is unreasonable. Come on, you can't believe what's written in the Bible, can you? We live in the 21st century now. We know better than that. We're wiser than that. And there are so many fronts on which Christians today are faced with that sort of challenge. But for me, the whole story of Adam and Eve is a story about what happens when we believe what is around us, the creation and the culture around us, rather than trusting God, even if we don't fully understand why it is that God says something. To actually trust what God says and to know that when we do, that is always for our best. And it's always what furthers his purposes and his kingdom the most. So God's not a killjoy particularly. He's not a killjoy at all. As we'll work through the Bible over this coming year, we're going to see a whole host of stories where God is one of the most joyful people there is and who wants his people to come into joy. So no, God doesn't mind us eating fruit. It just has to be the right kind of fruit. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.